Hi there, you're listening to the podcast version of 3CR's Monday Breakfast Show. Catch us live every Monday at 7am at 855 on your AM dial, streaming 3CR on the TuneIn app or at 3cr.org.au. Enjoy the show. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current ass. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. You are listening to Monday Breakfast here on 3CR radio either 855 am or you may be listening to us on streaming just remember folks we do have a podcast that comes out every week i know it was a bit slack um putting out the podcast for last week but it's usually every monday afternoon and it'll have the highlights of every show so any um any interviews that we think are pretty great and you might want to listen back to we always put up um if you want to listen back and critique our interview styles please do that you can also get in contact with us through um contacting the radio station leaving feedback call us on 94198377 all feedback is good feedback all feedback is good feedback absolutely um also you know what I, i often tweet about things that are coming up in the show if you want to know ahead of time my twitter handle is william underscore I L L Y A M. It's um it's a it's I've had that for a while, so that explains William Ilium. William Ilium, yeah. Word. Yeah. Um oh, okay. so that's 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 what we use. You know we also have a Facebook page, three C R Monday Breakfast. Just search that up. Um we've posted about this uh this event that we're just about to talk about right now. Um the Womanjika Balnarangagi is a cultural uh, festival and um, community event happening down in Balnarang this weekend, um, which will be introducing and also um, in- engaging in uh, Bunurang culture down on the peninsula. And um, we've got Karen Anderson on the line um, to tell us a bit more about Nangagi. Um Karen, you there? I am. Hi, Karen. How are you going? Well, thank you. That's great. Um, so can you tell us a, a bit about the Womanjika Balnarangagi? What's an, for, first of all, what is an ngagi? Ngagi is a Bunurong word for like a celebration festival, similar to what the word corroboree would mean. Mm, okay. And so um, so this ngagi that we're looking forward to is uh, a... Did I, did I get that right when I said that it was a sort of a festival of culture and music and, um, and things like that? Correct, you did. It's a um, celebration of the community coming together to learn about um, First Peoples' culture and specifically the Bunurong people, which is the land in which we're meeting. And it evolved from learning that happens at Balnaring Preschool, where we're learning about culture every day and teaching the children about the stories, the knowledge, the songs, the language and the dance. The the Ngagi used to be um, solely run by Bunjil's Nest, which is an initiative running out of the the school, Um, but it's now, it's, it's gotten a little bit bigger, is that right? Correct, yes. So we haven't had a Nagagi before. We've had just a community event for the last three years. We've run community events, which have been a culmination of the children's learning in the year and then come together at the end of the year for a big event. 
So it sort of got bigger each year. And last year we talked to Boonarong Elder and Nawi Carolyn Briggs and she said, what about we do a festival for Balnaring? So we've created the festival and we've invited community members to come in and form a committee to run that festival. Beautiful. So it's going from strength to strength, it sounds like. Um, but why Correct. why host uh, Ngagi? Like, what's what's its importance to the community? The importance to the community is the children are learning about First Peoples culture, which is passing on to the rest of their family members and then out into the broader community, and they've embraced what we've done. We've put a sculpture down at Balnaring Beach, which is a, our acknowledgement, if you like, to culture, which is Bunjil's Nest, and we've got Last year, when an artist worked with the children, not just at Balnarring Preschool, but also the primary school and the Early Learning Centre and St Joseph's Primary School. And the artist created an eagle to fly over the top of the nest, Bunjil being the creative spirit of the Bunurong people. Mm. Now, for the Ngagi, um, what other activities will there be? Anything for kids? And what, what do we have for grown-ups as well? Absolutely. So we have a full days program from 10 o'clock till roughly 930 We've got local music acts, both Indigenous people and non-Indigenous. Some of them um, are very familiar to our community and others they will be hearing for the first time. So we've got Carissa and Lucky and we've got Fox, who's a young musician, I think he's 16, maybe 17. Paul Dillon, who is an experienced musician and writes his own music. Slow Motion Pictures, who I believe had their inaugural gig on 3CR a few months ago. Owen Thomas. We have Cousin Leonard, who is a local duo of Marty and Tom Williams, and they've shared their music with the Balnarring community for many years, and they're multi-instrumentalist singer-songwriters. Then we have James Henry, who is a Melbourne singer-songwriter, and he's Jimmy Little's grandson. Noel Louch is a Mornington Peninsula band, and our day finishes off with um, Kutcher Edwards. So if anyone's complaining got... about... Uh, oh, there's more, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> and we've also got the Indigenous Hip Hop um, Project, who everyone I know is looking forward to. Then we've got a children's area that's completely children's activities, so storytelling, um, the local Aboriginal associations coming, will arrange to do some activities. We've got some cultural workshops that involves grass weaving, bush tucker walks, learning about our bay. Um, and we've also got a wellbeing area, and then we've got um, market stalls and food stalls. Beautiful. Okay, so it sounds like there's a lot of stuff. Like, um, yes, there I'm, is. I- just imagine what kind of a big, busy, full-on day it would be. It's starting at 10 a.m. and it goes through till 10 o'clock at night, but it doesn't yes. stop on that day, does it? There's there's more stuff happening the next day. Correct. On the, on the following morning, we've got yoga, hopefully on the beach if it's a fine morning, and then we've got a community breakfast in the same um, at the same venue that the festival is being held, which is our local camping ground. Beautiful. Okay. Um. So So there's camping available, which is great to know. Yes. Karen, it's Jackson here. Can I just ask, um, how did the relationship between the primary school and the local Indigenous community get set up? How did that come about? It was just started from the Balnaring Preschool, where we were just wanting to um, bring culture to all children. We felt that it was the right of all children to learn about the history of Australia. And we didn't learn a lot about it when we were growing up, so we wanted that to happen for our children. So we just, the staff started learning about um, our Indigenous culture, and then we slowly started implementing it into our program, and now it happens on a daily basis. And from there, we thought, well, now how can we bring the rest of the community into this? Let's invite the local school and the early learning centre, and then together we create programs where all the children are learning together with elders and Indigenous people through sort of... um, activity days that we do together. 
So you're getting elders into the classroom to talk about the history specifically of the area and broader Australian history as well? They're probably more talking about stories, some of their dream stories and creation stories, and then um, wrapping that um, music and song around that. So mm. the children last year learned a couple of songs completely in Boonarong language. Fantastic. Beautiful. Yes. So the event is uh, dog-free and alcohol-free, so it's it's very family-friendly um, for, for people to turn up. And there's camping, and then there was a yes. yoga the next day. So it's not just a single-day event. It's a whole weekend event. If you're down in the peninsula, um, can you give us uh, sort of instructions on how to get there? Like, wh- how, would, how would we arrive at the Ngagi? So you would come down the Peninsula Freeway and then you would come down into Balnaring towards the beach and when you get to the beach, it's on Balnaring Beach Road, you'll see it, it's very visible. Beautiful. Balnaring Beach Road, um, starting at 10am yes. this Saturday. Um, definitely turn up, folks. It's gold coin entry, I believe, and um, it's Thanks. just being funded by the community, is that right? Correct, yes. Yeah, beautiful. Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um we're going to be putting up all of the um, the details on our website and also we've sh- shared the link to um, more information about Langagi on our Facebook page, 3CR um, Monday Breakfast. Um, can you, Karen, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. These listener sponsors who keep the radio station going, when you become a listener sponsor, you get a part of this radio station. You get a little part of it. It's yours. You get a little share of it. It's 3CR Subscriber Drive, and we're asking you to show your love for 3CR. Support your favourite show by calling us on 9419 8377 or online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. $35 unwaged, $70 waged, or $150 solidarity. Subscribe to 3CR today. People lining up uh, out in the street, uh, out in Smith Street and Collingwood, lining up to take out their list of sponsorship. Up next, we have our regular segment, Over the Wall. And uh, this week on Over the Wall, Josh Cullinan is back to tell us about the recent industrial shenanigans of Domino's Pizza. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. Today, we discuss all things Domino's with Josh Cullinan. Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. As in the US, Domino's Pizza operates as a franchise. In Australia, there are over 600 stores with more than 400 owner-employers and tens of thousands of staff. Many employees are under 18, and many shifts are only three hours long. And, until recently, these staff were covered by 27 different enterprise agreements, often going back to the Work Choices era around 2005. Over the last few years, Domino's has been plagued by cases of wage fraud and unfair contracts. In the first major termination of an enterprise agreement since the famous Coles case in 2016, the Fair Work Commission tore up all the current agreements in early November of last year. 
the Commission gave Domino's three months to get a new agreement passed, or workers would return to the award. Their time ran out on January 24th of 2018. Josh Cullinan takes up the story from there. The Domino's agreements were all terminated from the 24th of January. Before that, Domino's and SDA had an unseemly rush to try and get an agreement in place that they could use to effectively deny that there were these minimum conditions in the award that should have applied. They wanted to avoid superannuation choice for workers and lock-in rest, and they wanted to also put in place a system of part-time work which was casualised, and that is basically abolish the right to know your starting and finishing time and have that rostered on a weekly basis. In that unseemly rush, they issued us a draft agreement on December the 28th in the afternoon, and an hour later they put it to all staff and announced a ballot would open in a few days' time for a vote on it. We notified the company of our concerns that they were failing to meet the good faith bargaining requirements, and we had a hearing in early January in front of the Fair Work Commission where we made out that case. The Fair Work Commission agreed with us, and in quite a historic order, ordered that the company not proceed with the ballot for the new agreement, but they had to meet with the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. They had to listen to all our proposals, consider them all before going ahead with any ballot. We then had a series of meetings with them in January and were able to impact on the agreement a little, but they had then decided that they were still going to go ahead with the agreement. So whilst it had some improvements... There are a very large number of issues with the agreement, but also with the process that's been used and the legal basis for the document that they say is now the agreement they're going forward with. That agreement was voted on in January. They've applied for the Fair Work Commission to approve it, and we've made it absolutely clear to the Fair Work Commission that we want to be heard in relation to that application and that we intend to contest it on a large number of fronts. And so that hasn't been listed for a hearing yet. We're looking forward to the opportunity. Since the 24th of January, every Domino's worker has been entitled to the benefit of the award, which means for the first time they had casual loadings of 25%. That went up for a lot of workers from 8.95% to 25%. You can imagine that's a great deal of money for a lot of workers. They had, for the first time, late night, Saturday and Sunday penalties much higher than what was previously being paid. A lot of workers have been converted to part-time to avoid paying the casual loadings. There are a lot of workers who are having their workplace rights not properly applied. But that said, we're slowly working through those issues and building the union at Domino's while we await the application to approve the agreement. Many of the hundreds of thousands of people who work for major retailers and fast food outlets have never worked under an award. Many in fast food in particular are young enough that they have never worked in a non-casual job or understood the difference in conditions between casual and permanent regimes. Since January 24th, and until Domino's can get an agreement that the Fair Work Commission ratifies as fair, which is at least months away, all workers are now receiving the award, which represents a large pay rise for most. Whilst increased pay is obvious, Josh is concerned that workers may mistakenly credit this to the new agreement and may not be aware of other conditions, such as leave entitlements, that they now have, he explained. We expect the vast majority of employees do not know that they're on award conditions. Their employers certainly aren't telling them that they've got superannuation choice or that they've got award rights that apply now. One of the problems of what has happened is that by putting the agreement up to ballot, many workers think that it just comes in at the end of that process. 
They don't have the employer telling them that the awards come into effect, that the agreements have been terminated. And workers are none the wiser about what their actual workplace instrument is that applies to them and what benefits they have under that. As we outlined in last week's episode on the Coles case, there's a new front opening in the retail and fast food industrial scene. The Australian Industry Group seems to be building a campaign with its members, such as McDonald's and Red Rooster, to create a new class of workers who have lost both casual penalties by being made permanent and overtime rates. Attempts to institute this have already begun at Coles and Domino's. There are many Domino's pizza outlets trying to use a sign-on sheet as a form to gain agreement from employees that they will be paid ordinary rates for overtime. So the issue being a worker comes in and starts work, they're scheduled to work a three-hour shift, they end up getting to their end of their shift and there's still another delivery to do or the manager won't come and sign them out and they then rely on this signed document to suggest that they are able to pay them overtime rates at ordinary rates after that. And we want to see a lot of these workers that want more secure work to be made part-time, but the core element that they will lose if this is approved would be the right to start and finish times. The AIG has also applied to the Fair Work Commission for a change to the minimum award, which would abolish this as well. They're seeking for the award to be changed so that it will not provide start and finish times for part-time staff, but rather they would have what's called an agreed availability and the employer can roster them within that agreed availability. Unfortunately, the SDA has conceded that already and we'll be putting in submissions arguing it shouldn't go ahead. The AIG doesn't normally wade into these matters before the Commission, does it? Uh, it does. It has an active participation in a lot of the award changes that are bad for employees and workers. Here, they've only relied on the evidence of McDonald's, Red Rooster and Hungry Jacks. None of those have employees to whom the award applies, as far as we know. They all have agreements which already provide these kinds of flexibilities. So for us, this is just another example of where sellout agreements in the past have led to approaches in the Commission to roll out those sellouts across the country. And we say that's what happened with penalty rates. If they hadn't have sold out penalty rates on Sundays in all of fast food and all of retail under SDA agreements, the Commission could never have cut Sunday penalty rates. You would have had hundreds of thousands of workers at McDonald's, at Woolworths, at Coles, all decry those outrageous cuts. But because none of them are actually impacted, the Commission could make this decision. So again, we're concerned that the AIG's application isn't having the outcry it should because so many workers have already lost these rights. We thank Mr Cullinan for his time and expertise. Listen in coming weeks for further updates from Josh on the industrial fights with Woolworths and Baker's Delight where the fight goes on. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast and that was Over the Wall talking with Josh Cullinan about uh, the situation at Domino's Pizza. Now the TWU are calling for more awareness 
and public accountability for companies that have rapidly expanded in the new food delivery craze, companies like Uber Eats, Fedora and Deliveroo. Uh, A rally was held on Wednesday in Sydney, following on from one in Melbourne earlier in the year, I think the end of January. And we're joined on the phone now by uh, Transport Workers Union uh, Victoria and Tasmania Branch Secretary John Berger to talk about this issue. Good morning, John. Oh, good morning. Good morning to your listeners. So, John, the TWU recently conducted a survey of over 200 delivery riders. What types of issues came up in that survey? Well, the issues, or the main results that we we got out of those 250 surveys was quite simply that the the wage rate as it's currently uh, prescribed to these people is well below the award rate. Now, a casual worker that works in that area uh, should receive no less than $24, $21 per hour. And certainly these guys, um, as best as we can ascertain through our survey, are working for as little as $6.67 per hour. Mm. And, uh, and almost 50% of them said that they, uh, they know somebody else who's been injured uh, whilst they've uh, been doing their job. So you know, there's, you know, those three uh, clear things uh, uh, overwhelmingly came out of the survey. And there was one further issue and that was that 70% of the riders said that they should get uh, entitlement such as sick leave which they currently don't get. So what kind of hours are most of these uh, riders working? I think there's sometimes an assumption that it's just a supplementary income, maybe 10 or 15 hours a week but from what they're saying, I mean I heard Tony Sheldon say at the rally that one rider a week is being severely injured on the job which suggests to me that more they're doing a lot more hours than kind of ca- a casual on the side job. Yeah, and that's, and that's correct. This is not a pocket money job. You know, this is not the type of thing that you would, um, you know, in, in years gone by when I was a young bloke, we used to do a paper round uh, just to support a, you know, a little bit of income coming in uh, as a kid. But these guys that are riding around are, are doing upwards of 40 hours per week. Um, and certainly if we, um, you know, it's a full-time job and we get people doing, you know, 20 hours a week and uh, the average age of these guys is around about 26, so you can expect that um, you know doing these type of uh, hours is certainly not just supplementary or something added to their um, their working life. It's a very physical job too. I mean, you know, you look at other physical jobs where there's a lot of uh, training and support around doing it correctly to keep your body in order. You know, you're going to get work cover if you're injured. What what does happen um, from the surveys that you've done to a rider who is injured on the job? What kind of support do they get from their uh, the people who pay the people who pay their their wages? Well, as far as we can ascertain, there's no support whatsoever, and there's certainly no um, control over the injuries that these these um, these riders get, and they can be. You know, from anything. If you can, you imagine if you're carrying something on your back, you know, the size of a backpack that's got um, could have you know multiple pizzas in there. It could have even some parcels in there, or groceries, or whatever it might be. That if you're riding up a hill, um, you're going to sustain a uh, you know, you have, well, you have the capacity to sustain a few injuries. And notwithstanding that, um, you know, the training that these people get um, is very limited, from what we understand, and. Um, once these people are injured, uh, they simply don't have any access to work cover or, or the normal things that you would expect an employee under a proper regulated system to have access to. So this industry, um, the delivery riders industry and delivery drivers, is being described by many people in the Labor Party and the broader union movement as part of the gig economy. It's a phrase that we're hearing a lot at the moment. John, What's meant by that phrase, and what are some of the features of these types of jobs? 
Yeah, well, look, there's nothing, there's nothing new about the, uh, the gig economy. It's just what we would say. It's, it's the digital work choices. And uh, certainly uh, when you know, there is no regulation to this whatsoever, uh, what, the, what we could simply say is it's just an old-fashioned way of exploiting people. Uh, and the operators that uh, operate the, uh, the apps, if you like, um, they don't have to uh, you know, worry about any of the ongoing issues that are, uh, you know, in terms of the employment relationship. These guys are just hired and fired via an app. Uh, their rates and conditions are set by algorithms, and there's certainly no compensation for people that get maimed or, um, you know, have, uh, you know, ongoing injuries and are struggling to pay their bills. So they have no prospect of dignity in retirement. There's no superannuation uh, and things of that, of that nature. So it's uh, when we talk about the gig economy, as I said before, it's just an old-fashioned exploitation way that's been going on since the 1800s. So no superannuation, um, as in the, because they're subcontractors, you know, under the law, they have to put aside their own super. Is that the idea? That's correct, yes. So it seems like there's more competition in, entering the marketplace as well in that space, and we're seeing lower wages and worsening conditions as a result, kind of counterintuitive to the constant um, championing of competition as delivering better results for everyone. Are you finding more workers from the industry are reaching out to the TWU as a result? Yes, we are. And uh, in, in particular, one of the uh, young writers that reached out to us through the rally we had earlier on in uh, this year um, was actually terminated for speaking out against his, um, you know, his employer, and uh, we're certainly going to take his case to the uh, Fair Work Commission and have it uh, have it dealt with. Uh, if you can imagine that um, some of these people that are being terminated uh, for all sorts of reasons, and and the latest one that we've come up for uh, or come across in recent weeks is they call it inactivity. So that means that if you don't regularly uh, log on for a period of time, it could be for one reason or, or another. Um, your login capabilities are then terminated. So that contract that you've been working under is subsequently terminated. And if you want to reapply, um, you certainly can reapply. That's, there's no issues with that. But the contract is less than the one that you um, recently vacated. So it's a, it's a race to the bottom in terms of um, you know, wages and conditions. And if there's uh, opportunities for uh, these companies just to um, uh, dispense with your services at a whim... Uh, it certainly uh, lends itself to being a race to the bottom in terms of the hourly rates and, and conditions. Yeah, there is a couple of cases that the TWU are bringing on behalf of some of these dismissed riders, isn't there? I read with interest there was another uh, young man who was chatting with his fellow uh, colleagues in an, uh, using an online chat service, and I think it was Fedora demanded access to those chat records and said that because he had started those communications while working for the company... He didn't have a right to keep that private from the company, and they were discussing in there their their workplace, their conditions. I mean, that's that's quite a worrying development. The company's asking to see your private conversations. Well, it is, you know, and and for all sorts of reasons, um, in, employees in different companies set up what's called the WhatsApp um, arrangement, where they can chat uh, amongst their colleagues about certain aspects of their work, and uh, certainly they're private. And why shouldn't people have an opportunity to talk about some of the issues that affect them in their workplace amongst their own colleagues? And uh, when a company says they want access to those um, those uh, arrangements, I, I just think that uh, well, that's just um, you know, it's abhorrent behaviour and should uh, should not um, you know, be allowed to happen. And for someone to be terminated for not 
divulging that information mm. is, is just downright un-Australian. Mm. So from the TWU's perspective, this, uh, you, you've, you've launched this right, Rights for Writers campaign. What, what are the main things you're hoping, hoping to achieve through the campaign? Well, what we're hoping to achieve is to get a regulated system in place for these employees. And you know, just like everybody else that works in a, um, you know, in a regulated environment so that they can have access to a, um, you know, an award system uh, that certainly delivers some outcomes for them, access to superannuation, obviously access to work cover and its associated uh, um, uh, entities in terms of any rehabilitation they might need when they get, um, when they get injured, and certainly uh, to make sure that uh, these people are treated fairly and just not dismissed at a whim, and in the case of that guy not uh, divulging his, um, uh, his private chats with people, uh, that that type of arrangement with, him, with that particular employer cannot happen again. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us this morning, uh, John. Good luck with the rest of the campaign, and hopefully we find it's a, a unionised workforce in the future. No worries, and uh, thank you very much, and let's hope that uh, we're able to achieve a, uh, a good outcome for these people. Absolutely. All right, thank you very much. And that was John Berger, the Victorian and Tasmania branch secretary of the TWU, talking about the Rights for Writers campaign. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Now we have an interview. Vanessa, I'll allow you to introduce it. Um, Hi. I'm so honoured to be here with Alex Miller. Alex Miller is the author of um, The Passage of Love and he's the twice award winner of the Miles Franklin and the winner of the Commonwealth Writers Prize for the Ancestor Game. Hello, Alex. Hi, Vanessa. How are you going? I'm quite well. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. It's a beautiful day up here. Yes, um, I can imagine that is the case, although, of course, I am indoors in a studio, so we all have our crosses to bear. <laughs> um, so I just have yeah. a few questions for you about your book, The Ancestor Game. I'll jump right in, if that's okay. The Ancestor Game? Sorry, no. The Passage of Love. Right. Ancestor Game's over a quarter of a century ago, but it may still be topical. Yes, well, I'm sure it is, but unfortunately I have an obligation to discuss The Passage of Love, although they're both great books. Both great books from a premier lyrical realist, at least in my opinion. Um, So to start with the narrative of The Passage of Love, I understand it's based on a formative relationship for you. Could you please share with us the process of turning this slice of life into art? Well, I took a long time to find a way of telling it, really. It's a, if you like, it's a memoir cast in the form of a novel. Um, in the form of a novel because um, it's the story of, a, of the coming into being of a writer and of a critical relationship in his life, in this case, and also in the life of the woman, Lena, who was my first wife. And... Um, how to tell that story has always been a problem for me. My wife tells me I've tried several times. I kind of forget what I've been doing over the last 30 or 40 years. She says, no, no, you've often had a go at this and you've never had the perspective, the distance, the detachment on your young days to be able to tell it 
and now you have, you're old. And um, I mean, one of the blessings of being fit and old is that you can view your youth as a, um, um, yeah, as a different time, different place, and different person. So I managed to write this in the form of the third person, but with the present day old man, old writer, me, um, sort of delivering the story. Of course. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't an easy structure to find, but once I'd found it, uh, it, it seemed to be the right one. And I guess I called it a novel because um, in in real life, I didn't publish until later than the events in this book. But uh, to have written a book about coming into being a writer and to have not actually published something in the end <laughs> would have sort of left the story hanging there, wouldn't it? Well, I just want to speak to, to a particular moment in the story which I think tied things together quite nicely. At the very end of the book, the main character's love interest pre- presents the writer protagonist with a self-portrait, which is gorgeously described as presenting not the essence but the passage of love. So could you share with us a little bit your thoughts on this specific theme, the passage of love? Yes, I suppose in the book, it's, it occurs twice, that phrase in the book. I didn't know what the title of the book would be. I think for a long time I just called it Lena, which is the name of the main woman in the book, because she sort of dominates and directs the story, as she should. She was a very powerful person in my life. And um, then I realized that the, I'd used that term twice. Once, when in early on in the book, when he's attending a funeral and the funeral of her mother, actually. And he's just been, they've just been married. And he's kind of looking at the coffin and it's in the funeral parlor, I guess, or in the church. I'm not sure, I can't remember now. And he says to himself, because the the marriage and the love between them is a troubled thing also, he says, I suppose we can never understand the passage of love any more than we can understand the passage of death. And then that phrase, as you say, comes back into the, is repeated again. And I didn't realize I was repeating myself in the novel when he speaks of the portrait that she brings him. He decides it's a portrait. She's quite pleased with that. She never gives her paintings titles, never really discloses the mystery of her paintings, leaves that up to the viewer. And um, <coughs> he, um, he sees the painting as... Um, in a sense, the way in which she has concealed the secret source of her own power, kept it from him as this special place in her, which which he respects and admires over the years. And, and he calls it, this is really the sort of the passage of love that she's represented here. And um, I think what it means in the end for the book is that um, throughout my life, I've been helped, supported, assisted, loved, hated, reviled, <laughs> of course, which is all part of love. Uh, love. I, I don't mean love in the sort of lovey-dovey way. I mean love in the terrifying way. And um, the, thing, the, thing, the passage of love has been, in a sense, this terrifying journey. And the old man, looking back on it, is aware of that, but grateful for it. Thank you so much for sharing that comprehensive explanation with us, Alex. 
Um, yeah, finally, so, so my, daughter, my daughter says, don't never ask Alex a question. <laughs> no, no, we're all sitting here spellbound. Um, finally, for my own edification as somebody who cares a lot about words, I'm just wondering if you could describe to us the process of writing one of those astute and eloquent Alex Miller sentences. Do you adjust a lot? Do you let it flow? Do you do multiple drafts? Do you go to the OED? How do you write a sentence? Yeah, all those things. <laughs> and also long silences of staring into space. You know that famous picture, um, I'm not sure who did I think it might even be German, of somebody sitting on a rock staring into space, writer at work. Uh, yeah, it's a wonderful question, and it's one I ask myself every morning. <laughs> how the hell am I going to write this bloody stuff? And sometimes I think with um, a book, I think it was my most recent novel before this one, Coal Creek, it just flowed. It just sort of, it was like tapping into a source somewhere and it, it went from beginning to end without me really being terribly self-conscious about controlling anything. And um, this one, yeah, it was a struggle. I guess I decided... With this one, I kind of realized that I'd decided, and it's not a kind of self-conscious decision, that it had to be very spare and very, the, the language, I mean, had to be very spare, clear-cut, um, even cool, to um, to carry the whole thing, which was going to be quite a big task. I could see that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess the language is a bit softer when it comes to the first person of the old man and his view back over back over his life, where there's perhaps more reflection and consideration. But in the um in the language of the book itself, I would say it's it's very simple, very direct. Well, I um, thought it was a beautiful novel. I think it was psychologically very clearly observed and astute. There were a number of gorgeous symbols. I really enjoyed it. Good on you, thanks, Vanessa. I appreciate it. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for asking me too, and have a lovely week. You too. Estás sintonizando 3CR 855 de tu dial AM. صدای ما را از رادیو 3CR 855 AM می‌شنوید. Kính thưa quý vị, đây là đài phát thanh 3CR trên làn sóng AM 855. Kính mời quý vị đón nghe. وتاي واحد نقدر يسني سان وراديها جالي ذا ار Each week, 3CR broadcasts over 130 programs in 25 languages supporting communities and viewpoints that you just don't hear about anywhere else. Subscribe to your award-winning multilingual community radio station, 3CR, and help keep these voices on the airwaves. Call the station on 9419-8377. The number is again 9419-8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.